We're going to be in Philippians. So go ahead and open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. As you know, uh, the church is located uh, near the transit center. And every couple days at the transit center, I hear a loud, unfriendly voice say something like this. Stay behind the yellow lines. Often, though, one time isn't enough. And Pastor John could attest to this because he hears them too. The next time the announcement is made, the voice is impatient, annoyed, stern, and maybe a little angry. Stay behind the yellow lines. You. Right? It's pointed. It's direct. You can tell that the attendant does not want to have to repeat themselves. Giving warnings can get tedious, especially if the person you're talking to is uh, set upon crossing that yellow line. But I don't feel that way with my children, at least when it comes to their safety. Of course, there's warnings we give them that we'd rather not have to ever give again. Uh, But when it comes to their safety, we really don't mind. When I unbuckle my four-year-old Nora from her car seat and set her outside the van, I tell her to stand on that white line. Right? Because as long as she stands on that white line, she will not get hit by an oncoming vehicle. I don't mind telling her that every time I take her out of the car. Why? Because I love her. Giving a warning to her is not a problem. It keeps her safe. I'm going to give that warning again and again. The Apostle Paul makes the same point about warnings in Philippians 3, verse 1 where he says, to write the same things, again, is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. Go ahead and open your Bibles to Philippians 3, verse 1. We looked, last time we met together, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. And then this next part, he says, to write the same things, again, is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. I don't think he's talking about rejoicing in the Lord. I think he's talking about the warning that is coming up next. Saying, I'm going to give you a warning that you know. I told it to you when I was there. I tell it to you every time I'm there. It's a warning that you know. But it's safer for you for me to repeat this warning. And so today, this morning, we're going to find, we're going to hear a warning that is easy for us to ignore. It's the kind of warning that many of you will think this morning that you don't need. You will think, I don't need this warning. I know this. I've got this, Paul. I imagine some of the Philippians thought the same thing. Um, I uh, worked at a coffee shop in my previous life. Loved working in a coffee shop. We we had these uh, giant tubs, and I'm trying to remember if it was tubs of mayonnaise or maybe of sour cream. Giant tubs of mayonnaise, and they had a sticker on the side. A sticker showing a baby tipped over the side, legs dangling in the air, head into that tub. Have you guys ever seen one of those pictures? Maybe not a mayonnaise or sour cream. You're like, who does that? Right? (laughs) But obviously, someone must have done it at some time. Probably some poor child lost their life getting stuck in a tub of something like that. It doesn't seem like a real danger, right? But obviously it must be because every giant tub of mayonnaise has that picture on the side. And you've probably seen other warnings like that. A scooter that has on it, this product moves when used. That doesn't seem like a warning we need. I've seen a label on peanuts, you know, 100% peanuts with a warning. This product contains peanuts. Or in in a laundromat, there's that sticker on the side that says, don't put any person into this washer. All of those are warnings that you think we wouldn't need is common sense. And you may think this morning that you don't need to be, war- to be warned not to trust in anything besides Christ for your salvation. You may think that, that's salvation 101, salvation in Christ alone. I know that. You may think that you don't need that warning. But that's exactly the warning that Paul gives to the Philippians in Philippians 3, verses 2 through 6, 
we're going to be this morning. Remember that the Philippian church was a healthy, sacrificial, gospel-advancing church. This really was a model church. It had some problems, but for the most part, fantastic church. This church was submitted to Paul's apostleship. They supported Paul as a missionary. They were teacher. They were teachable. They were eager to have Timothy come to help them with their unity problems. The church wasn't perfect. It did have some unity problems within. It was tempted to retreat as they were facing opposition from without. But overall, it was a healthy, doctrinally solid church. When Paul writes to them about salvation in Christ alone, through faith alone, it's not like he's writing to the Galatians who were really in danger of accepting this false gospel. The Philippian church was solid, but Paul knew they still needed this warning. And it's a warning that we need to get this morning too. So I'm going to read Philippians 3, verses 1 through 6, and then we'll pray. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision who worship in the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh. If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, I'm blameless. And I'm going to go a little bit further, although we'll cover this next week. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Let's pray together. Uh, Father, we come before you this morning asking that you would guard our hearts. We ask for clarity. We ask you, uh, Father, to protect us so that our boast would be only in Christ Jesus and his finished work. I pray, Father, that you protect any um, belief in works or confidence in the flesh, anything that we could do or haven't done from seeping into our faith. I pray, Father, um, that we would all have that same clarity from the youngest of us to the oldest. Lord, I know growing up in a Christian home that this is an ongoing battle, Lord, to have a clarity. We, we, we affirm the doctrine, Lord, but so easy to lean on what we have or haven't done. So I do pray, Father, that, that this healthy meal from your word, this, this warning that is needed would be good for our souls and that Christ alone would be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. In Philippians 3, verses 2 through 6 this morning, we're going to see three reasons to beware false teachers who tell you your salvation is incomplete. Okay? Beware false teachers who tell you your salvation is incomplete. That there's something missing, something that needs to be added to it, something you haven't yet done, something you need to go back and finish up. Before we get to the first reason, though, we need to learn about these false teachers. Paul doesn't specifically say false teachers. Instead, he calls them dogs and evil workers and the false circumcision. These false teachers followed Paul wherever he went, wherever he planted churches. Today, we call them Judaizers. Okay? We call them Judaizers. These Judaizers were Jews who taught that Gentile Christians, in addition to believing in Jesus needed to follow the Old Testament law to be saved. They needed something else in addition to Christ. They focused on, it wasn't the only, the only thing, but focused on the act of circumcision. It's always awkward talking about circumcision. Let's just be honest, right? If you don't know what it is, ask your parents. Not now, later. But most of you know, so that's fine. Issue was solved early in uh, the, the uh, issue of, of whether Gentiles needed to be circumcised was solved early when the church was getting started. In fact, it was the whole reason for the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. Acts 15 tells the story of how the apostles affirmed that salvation is going to be through faith in Christ alone, affirmed that truth. Of course, they didn't decide it was going to be. 
Acts 15.1 describes what the problem was, that some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And right there is the error of the Judaizers. If you don't get circumcised, you can't be saved. And of course, the Jerusalem Council affirms that that is not true, that salvation is by believing in Christ alone. The Judaizers were not Christians. They had a different gospel. When Paul writes to the Galatians in chapter 1, verse 6, the churches in Galatia struggled with uh, the allure of this false gospel. They were tempted, saying that we just, we just need to finish off our salvation. We just need to do a little bit more. And Paul warned them, that's a false gospel. Galatians 1, verses 6 through 8 says, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another. Only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. This is dangerous stuff. This is a gospel worthy of hell. This is not the true gospel. Jesus plus works is not how someone's made right with God. The Judaizers had a false gospel that was a toxic mixture of faith in Christ and relying upon ritual. That is who the Apostle Paul is warning the Philippians of in verses 2 through 6. So let's look at this first reason to beware of these false teachers. False teachers are the opposite of what they claim to be. False teachers are the opposite of what they claim to be. That word beware, or in some of your Bibles that's look out, is repeated three times to bring home the seriousness of the warning. It's more than a potential danger. The Judaizers would infiltrate these churches. They followed Paul wherever he went. This is not just a first century problem. It's something that the church has faced century after century, and it always will until Christ returns. Satan will always try to muddle the gospel by mingling faith with works. It's not the only problem that the churches will face, but it will constantly come back. Paul begins in the beginning of verse 2, beware of the dogs. It's strong language there. Paul isn't thinking of, of cute pets. He's not thinking of your golden retriever. He's thinking of packs of dangerous wild dogs who scavenge for food, eating garbage, feasting upon whatever dead carcasses they found. The Jews often refer to Gentiles as dogs, unclean people because of what they ate. It was, it, was, it was a common way. The Jews refer to those outside as dogs. But in this case, the real dogs were those who were spiritually unclean. Not unclean according to the Old Testament laws because of food that they ate, but they were the false teachers. They were the ones who were actually unclean, not the uncircumcised Gentile believers, but the law-keeping Judaizers. These were the ones who were the actually unclean dogs, going about in packs, trying to subvert the ministry of the, two, of the true gospel. They would have hated being called dogs. He's saying, beware of the real Gentiles. Beware of those who are really dirty. Beware of them because they're dangerous. They, have, they offer you nothing. Beware of them. In the middle of verse 2, we see the second warning. Beware of the evil workers. Again, this, this is under our first reason. False teachers are the opposite of what they claim to be. They claim to be clean, but they were dogs. They claim to be good workers on a good mission with a good purpose, but really they were, they were evil workers. We see in the middle of verse 2. The Judaizers, no doubt, thought that they were doing God's work. Not just in keeping the law. It's not just that they, they were workers of good. But that they thought that they were doing good as they won converts to Judaism from the church. See, they saw the church as their mission field. I don't know if they were excited about all these Gentiles becoming saved. Or if they were just jealous for them. If they saw, wow, look at that. Mission field just bursting there. We need to get them into God's people. So they saw these new converts to Christ 
as an opportunity to win more converts to Judaism. But they were actually evil workers. They were evangelists of evil. They proclaimed a false gospel. Today, evil workers are Mormon missionaries. Mormon missionaries are these evil workers. They think that they are doing good, but they are evil workers. Door-to-door Jehovah Witnesses are evil workers. Actually, what they are doing, what they are doing is evil. Catholic priests are evil workers. They are subverting the true gospel of Christ. They think that they're doing good. But they are teaching a false system of works to be made right with God. Paul has called them dogs and evil workers. This is strong language, right? I can see by the silence in the room, people are uncomfortable with this. This is not what we do. But that is the parallel in today's world. People would say, it's good to have Christ or some version of Christ. But you, you need to add to that. You need to finish that off. It's not enough. It's not Christ alone. At the end of verse 2, Paul calls them the false circumcision. And the ESV has those who mutilate the flesh. This is some graphic language here. Now, neither the word false nor circumcision, as it is in your New American Standard Bible, are, are there. Instead, the word in Greek is the word for cutting that sounds like the Greek word for, cir- for circumcision. So all of you who hate puns, that's totally what Paul's doing here. He's making a pun. See, it's biblical. With their emphasis on circumcision, though, these false teachers, Paul exposes them with this word flesh cutters or mutilators. That sounds a lot like the Greek word for circumcision. They accomplish nothing but destruction. Ironically, in their hands, circumcision has really become nothing more like a pagan act. It's like those kinds of pagan acts that were commanded against in the law. We see that in Leviticus 21, verse 5, where it says, They shall not make any baldness on their heads, nor shave off the edges of their beards, nor make any cuts in their flesh. He's talking about ways to get the, the ways that the pagans used to get the attention of their gods. And God told the people of Israel, I don't want you to have anything to do with any of that. You're not going to try to win your God's favor by cutting up yourself. Maybe some of you are thinking now of that dramatic story of where Elijah has the show off with the, uh, uh, or the showdown with the prophets of Baal. And it's, it's a test to see whose God will send fire down from heaven first. First Kings 18.28, and you know the God of Israel wins, right? Prophets of Baal lose. But here's what the prophets of Baal do. So they cried with a loud voice and cut themselves according to their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out on them. And that's really what Paul's accusing them of here. They, 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 what they're doing has no value. They're trying to win God's favor by mutilating themselves. It's as useless as what the prophets of Baal did. See, the Judaizers had all this history and, 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 and promises and this legacy, but they were unclean. They were destructive. They were workers of evil. They were lost men. They had not a gospel of good news, but only of bad news, who led others towards damnation along with them. We've already talked about this. Would we tolerate Paul's language about anyone? Right? Obviously, Paul is more concerned about the Philippians being worn than he is about being called nice. And he's more concerned about them staying away from this false gospel than he is about being politically correct. We must be on guard against anyone who teaches that you need to add anything to the finished work of Christ. Salvation is through faith in Christ alone. The only way we can be justified, the only way we can be declared right with God is by believing in what Jesus did through his perfect life of obedience, through his taking the punishment of sinners on the cross. Galatians 2, 16, and again, Paul was addressing a very similar problem, though it had become more dangerous to the church, the churches in, in, in Galatia. Galatians 2.16 says, Nevertheless, knowing that man is not justified by the works of the law, you are not declared right by works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, 
Even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. We are justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Let us never get tired of saying that, right? We are, faith, we are justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Prof, uh, Professor Pastor Jack, Jack Hughes affirmed this at the first message at the retreat this past weekend. He talked about how it's difficult ministering in the South to Baptist churches who have all different kinds of things that people place their confidence in. I was baptized. I prayed a prayer. And I think that there is a good warning here. I'm going to say this cautiously. I'm going off script. I'm going to be cautious here. We must be careful not to become evil workers in our homes. Right? We are all so zealous for those of us who have kids, for our kids to get saved. We have to keep pointing them to salvation is through faith in Christ alone. It is not by them praying a prayer. We're not to look back and say, well, I remembered when you prayed a prayer. It is not in the eagerness to get them baptized as if that somehow seals the deal. The Judaizers, uh, Paul, Paul, you know, just tears apart this, their character here. I know that that is not our character. But we have to be careful of not making the same mistake with our kids and of adding on anything in our desire to win converts, in our desire to see them saved even out of our love for them. We cannot add anything to the simplicity of the gospel, which leads for lots of awkward conversations and lots of not knowing whether our kids are saved or not. Because we go to them again and again and say, it is only by believing in Jesus Christ. And we're going to talk, really, although not, not specifically with parents, but address more of that here in, in, in just a minute. What does it mean to not put confidence in our flesh? Those who teach you that you have to add to your faith performance or moralism or rituals or sacraments are not clean. They are not good people. They are not admirable. They are not to be commended for their sincerity. They are unclean, destructive, and dangerous, right? That's what the Apostle Paul says here. So we've looked at our first reason to beware of the false teachers who tell us your salvation is incomplete. The second reason is false teachers offer nothing to those who truly belong to God. They offer nothing. And Paul draws attention in verse 3 to who we really are, to the blessings that we have in Christ Jesus, to the fact that we are truly saved. If you have saving faith, you belong to God. You can't belong more to God than you currently do. In contrast to the false circumcision, he says we are the true circumcision. And, and, and again, the, the, the speech is trying to draw out the contrast that is embedded in this pun here. It doesn't say true. He says we are the circumcision which is a strange thing to rally around, right? That's not a popular way to get converts in this world. We are the circumcision. None of you are laughing, but it's awkward, right? Okay, so it's a shocking word choice for a former Pharisee to, you, to encourage Gentiles, right? All of you uncircumcised believers, you are the circumcision. See, but from Abraham until Pentecost when the church started, God's people were the people of Israel. The men of Israel were circumcised on the eighth day. It was a sign that they belonged to the people of Israel. But circumcision alone, of course, didn't make the Israelites a true worshiper of God. Among the Israelites, only some had saving faith. Thus, even early in Israel's history, soon after, 40 years after leaving Egypt, in Deuteronomy 10.16, God commands them, circumcise your heart and stiffen your neck no longer. You're going to have to have something else done to you. It's not just about your outward flesh. This is what needs to happen in your heart. Your heart needs to be circumcised. You need, you need, you need the deadness of your heart to be removed, the uselessness of your heart. You need a new heart. God makes a promise in Deuteronomy 36, 30 verse 6, later in the book as Israel prepares to enter the promised land. Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul so that you may live. And this is a future promise 
for, for Israel. It's part of the new covenant promise that God would do something amazing in their hearts, giving them new hearts so that they would love God and so that they would worship God. And we have enjoyed some of that fulfillment of that promise now in the church age. We see that in Colossians 2, verses 11 through 12. In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. He's talking about the heart circumcision here. In the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. What was, what, 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 what was useless and dead has been taken away. What is left is what he's made new having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. So the, the true worshipers of God, true Israel, knew that they needed their hearts to be changed. They were waiting for the circumcision of their hearts to happen. Paul says, this is what has happened in the church now through those who have truly believed in Jesus Christ. Membership of the true circumcision has never been a matter of only outward circumcision. Now in God's plan, Gentiles on a massive scale have been incorporated into the church, God's people in this age. So Paul encouraged the Philippians who were part of this true circumcision, who were truly God's people, part of the church, with three marks of what it means to be God's people. So they are the true circumcision. And he says, first, you worship in the spirit of God. You worship in the spirit of God. Paul contrasts what man can do to the exterior flesh with only what God can do. True worship is the work of God's Spirit. Apart from God's Spirit working in you, you would never respond to the gospel of saving faith. Apart from His Spirit working in you, our worship would never be acceptable to Him. Paul's letter to Titus in chapter 3, verse 5, describes how he saved us. God saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. God saved us by his mercy through the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. This is the Holy Spirit's work in our hearts so that we respond to the gospel with saving faith. Across the globe, across the 7 billion people, the only acceptable worship which is occurring on any day is that which is done through His Holy Spirit, through His Spirit giving new birth to those who are lost. Romans 8 verses 8 and 9 affirms this. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, you are not in the flesh but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Only God's Spirit can move someone from death to life. As Jesus said, you must be born again. And that's the work of the Spirit. And that should be encouraging to us. Paul meant this to be encouraging to the Philippians. If your hope is in Christ alone, that is only through His Spirit working in you. You have God's Spirit. You are the true worshipers. You, those, those false teachers, those who would add to an incomplete salvation, offer nothing. You are the ones with the Spirit of God, not them. Nothing to boast in, right? It's not our work. That's God's Spirit bringing us to new life. It's to rejoice in. So that was the first mark of the circumcision. For we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God. Again, in the middle of the verse, we see, and glory in Christ Jesus. That word glory can be translated to glory, to boast, to exalt in. It's something that we place our confidence in. To boast in something is only foolish if the object is unwarranted. The false teachers were boasting in their circumcision. That was foolish. Jeremiah 9, verses 23 through 24, uh, Paul enjoys this verse. He quotes it uh, later in, in, in 1 Corinthians. But it says this, Thus says the Lord, Let not a wise man boast in his wisdom. That's a foolish place to boast, to glory and to exalt in. Let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth, for I delight in these things. And I know it can be a strange concept to think of us boasting, but, but it's, it's, it's almost like we take pride in it, we own it, we exalt in it, we rejoice in it. This is ours. And so who is ours? Christ Jesus is ours. We are the ones who glory in Christ Jesus. He is our confidence. 
We rest our confidence on what he's accomplished. On what he has accomplished in his death on our behalf. It is what we cling to. We boast in his fulfilling the law of God. We boast in him taking our punishment. We boast in his resurrection from the dead. We boast on, in his ongoing high priestly ministry. Our only boast, our only source of glory is Christ alone. That's, 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 that's why the, those false teachers add nothing to us. We boast in Christ Jesus. Our only boast, our only source of glory is Christ in us, the hope of glory. So we are the true circumcision who worship in the spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus, and at the end of verse 3, put no confidence in the flesh. The, 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 the word for confidence kind of has, comes from the, 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 the same semantic range as the word for boast. Confidence here is to be so convinced of something, to be so persuaded by something that you put your trust in it. Amusement parks are a great example of confidence, right? When they put you up into that tall tower and you're like, you see your legs hanging down. I don't know if you're like 25 stories up or something, right? What is your confidence in? That that ride is going to work. That when they blast you towards the ground, it's going to be okay. The fact that you got on that ride showed that you have confidence in it. Our confidence, Paul says, is not in the flesh. We put no confidence in the flesh. And that's exactly what the Judaizers were encouraging. They'll put confidence in your flesh. Yes, fine, you believe in Christ. Fine, he's your Messiah. And, and, and they would affirm that. But it's not enough. Put your confidence in the flesh. Flesh here is really Paul using some, some irony here as the Judaizers were actually putting confidence in the flesh. The, the, the commentator Hendrickson says, Flesh is anything apart from Christ on which one bases his hope for salvation. John Calvin, quote, quoted by, by another commentator, says this, Anything external in man that he could glory in, everything that's outside Christ, that is the flesh. Anything that you could boast in, anything you could put your confidence in, anything you could lean upon, anything you could rest on, anything you could rely on, God's people Put no confidence in the flesh. That is what it means to be part of the true people of God, to be the true circumcision. God's people are not convinced. They don't rest in their prayers prayed. They don't rest in the fact that they raised their hands or responded to an altar call. They don't rest in the fact that they have confessed their sins or, their, or even looking back and saying, oh, I've conquered some sins. They don't rest on the fact that they've attended so many church services. They put no confidence in those things. The confidence is only in Christ Jesus. God's people are not persuaded because they went on mission trips, or because they memorized scripture, or because they keep a daily Bible reading plan, because they've evangelized. Those, those places are those, are, those are things that we do, hopefully, by God's grace, through his grace, working through us. But that is not our confidence. Our confidence can only be in Christ alone. The confidence of a true believer is Christ alone. If you are the true circumcision, if you are God's people, you have what the false teachers lack. They offer you nothing. We are those who worship in the spirit. We are those who glory in Christ Jesus. We are those who put no confidence in the flesh. All of that by God's grace alone, right? Because of his spirit working in us, all of that is God's work. Now, Paul wouldn't need to expose the foolishness of the false teachers. He wouldn't need to expose the foolishness of them putting confidence in the flesh if there wasn't something appealing in it. And I think that this is where we need to wake up. There is something appealing with putting confidence in our flesh. And I don't know exactly why. I mean, because when we hear this, you know, some Orthodox Jews come in and saying, hey, we, we, we accept the Messiah too, you just need to be circumcised. You're like, what? Right? There would be no allure there. But for the Philippian church, Paul knew that it would be. And, and I don't exactly know what was going on in their minds that made this appealing. Why Paul had to cons was so concerned about this, except we know that, that, that there is, in our flesh, something appealing about adding to our faith works. Perhaps the Judaizers promised more certainty regarding their salvation. You know, this is something objective. You can look back to the place in time when you too were circumcised. 
kind of a way of sealing the deal. Perhaps they promised something that the Gentile Christians felt was missing. Maybe they were offering them a fast track to sanctification. Change is easier. You just need to do this. You're missing out on this. There's this one thing. Maybe they were promising them a more emotional religious experience with more liturgy. You know, we've, we've got this incredible system of priests and sacrifices, and it's so ancient. Maybe they, they were promising a link to historic Ju- Judaism, and perhaps they were promising a pass from persecution, that they wouldn't have to be accused of being part of a new, of a new religion, but instead part of Judaism. False teachers will always offer an easier way, a more effective way, a more emotional way, a more certain way, a more fruitful way, a less persecuted way. They will find something that appeals to you. And they say, all you need is Christ plus something. But that is not how we are saved. We are saved through faith in Christ alone. So the question we have to look at what this definition of the true circumcision is this morning is, are you truly part of God's people? Is your worship of God the supernatural work of his spirit? Has he given you new life? Have, has, has he awakened your heart to the gospel so that Jesus is your only hope? Is your only boast in Christ Jesus and his cross? Is Jesus Christ the only one to whom you cling? The classic, classic, if God were to ask you, why would I let you into heaven? What do you say? Do you start thinking of what you have and haven't done? Or do you say, Jesus Christ took my place on the cross. That is my only hope. It wasn't that I prayed a prayer. It wasn't that I made a decision. It wasn't that I've been so changed. My hope is in Christ. Do you place no confidence in the flesh? If you're tempted to place confidence in the flesh, in our next reason, Paul shows the foolishness of doing so and uses himself as a case study. That brings us to reason number three here. Reason number three, false teachers foolishly place their confidence in the flesh. Paul exposes the foolishness of these false teachers, confidence in the flesh, by using himself as an example of those, uh, using himself as an example, as one who beats all the rest of them, right? So if you want to do this placing confidence in the flesh game, Paul says, I've got them all beat, Like, those Judaizers have nothing on me. Let's look at verse 4 together. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Paul argues that he had... Now, now, now of course, he's kind of talking... In, in this boasting, like, like, like he's just going crazy here, right? It's like, if, if, if you, they want to play this game, I'll play that game. And he makes a case for himself being the greatest of all time when it comes to placing confidence in the flesh. He's like, I've got them all be. Those Judaizers are nothing compared to me. He gives two categories of these credentials he has, of the things that he could place confidence in the flesh, and really what he did at one time, we'll see in verse 7 next week, but verses 5 and 6, and and there's two categories. There's those things that Paul received that he did nothing for, and then there's those things that that, that he accomplished. So beginning in verse 5, we see some of the things that he received. Circumcised the eighth day. He's making a case that he wasn't a a, a proselyte to Judaism. He was born to law-abiding parents, just like John the Baptist had been circumcised on the eighth day and Jesus had been, Paul came from that same kind of family. He was circumcised on, on the eighth day. He had good Jewish parents. The middle of verse 5, of the nation of Israel. He was making a case here that he just wasn't a, a descendant of Abraham. There are more descendants of Abraham than who, who, who weren't part of Israel. He wasn't even saying that he was a descendant of Isaac, but a descendant of Jacob, a descendant of of Israel, one of the 12 tribes. The people of Israel were a people who had tremendous promises. God makes a tremendous promise to Israel in Exodus 19, verses 5 and 6. 
Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. A tremendous promise of being a possession among all the peoples, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Paul talks about some of the benefit of belonging to Israel in Romans 9, verses 4 and 5. To whom belong the adoption of sons, the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises, whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh. He's like, being a Jew is tremendous. Look at all these promises. Look at what we are the recipients of. We, 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 we are spoiled. So he says, I'm circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin. Now, unlike many Jews who had returned from the exile, see that in the middle of verse 5 of the tribe of Benjamin, Paul was an Israelite who could trace back what tribe he was from. He just didn't have to stop there. He could say, no, I know what tribe I'm from. I haven't lost that. I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. And being part of Benjamin was kind of a cool thing. Benjamin, uh, so the tribe of Benjamin, the land allotted to, to them is, is where the city of of Jerusalem was. It's where the temple was, where the palace was. Out of Benjamin came the first King Saul. Didn't have a great track record, but uh, further out, uh, the tribe of Benjamin stayed loyal to, to David. So he's just, he's just checking all the boxes here. Circumcised on the eighth day, a nation of Israel, tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in, in, again in the middle of verse 5. That, that, that means he was one who spoke Hebrew or, or, or Aramaic. He had resisted the Hellenizing influences of the Greek world. He was raised as a real Jew, a real Hebrew, not one of the, the Hellenized Jews, not, 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 not one of those who had accommodated to the surrounding culture. He wasn't a sellout, he's saying. The end of verse 5, we kind of switch to the things that Paul was responsible for. That was, that was things that Paul's parents did in the beginning. But here, here's what Paul did. He says, as to the law of Pharisee. The Pharisees were a sect of Judaism, sought to be pure. They believed the supernatural parts of God's word. They obeyed God's commands. They even added commands to God's commands so that they would not break any of God's, of God's commands. In Acts 26, verse 5, Paul describes himself, I lived as a Pharisee according to the strictest sect of our religion. Galatians 1.14 describes himself, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. He, he was the super Jew. He embraced being a Pharisee. He was going to be as holy as possible. We see how far that holiness goes in verse 6. As to zeal, a persecutor of this church, we see in verse 6. Galatians 1.13 describes him. For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. Paul's zeal was so much that he advocated destroying the church. He pursued it. That's what persecuted means. He pursued it. He tracked it down. He was a hound after the fox. He tried to destroy the church. And then his last commendation at the end of verse 6. As to the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. Now, he wasn't saying that he was perfect. Paul knew about indwelling sin. He, he, he still had a guilty conscience. But every examination of Paul's life would lead to the same, to the same conclusion, blameless, above reproach. This is what was said of John's parents, Zachariah and, and Elizabeth. Blameless. Paul conformed to the requirements of the law. All the boxes were checked. He was even zealous for it. Now, next week, in verses 7 and 8, we're going to see how Paul thinks about these, these credentials. But for now, we see that he's making it, and it's kind of a transition argument here, but he's making the case that he had far more reason to place confidence in the flesh than the false teachers did. The false teachers were foolish to put their hope in their flesh. He had them all beat. We see in verse 7, whatever things were gained to me, those things I've counted as lost for the sake of Christ. We need to be cautious. See, your flesh, the, 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 the remaining impulse in you, apart from the new you, 
whatever that is that still has that propensity to sin. Your flesh desires to be independent of God. Your flesh desires to place confidence in itself. You are susceptible, susceptible to this deceit too. This is why Paul warns the, the Philippians again. This is why warning against trusting in works is such a dominant theme in the New Testament. That is what our flesh wants to do. Those who look good are going to continually say, you're missing out. There's more. You might be tempted by the financial success that they have, by the behavior of their children, by their academic and professional acceptance, by their winsomeness, by their historic liturgy, by their novelty, by their mysticism. Those are just some of the many ways that people apply to say, you're missing out. All you need is Christ plus something. Or you might feel that you're missing something yourself. You might start looking for something more. Maybe it's a sense of awe or a lack of sanctification. Or maybe you're tempted to think, you know, it's just so easy to believe and be saved. Or really, I think this is more likely. It's so hard to believe and be saved. Like, aren't I missing something? Paul wanted to keep the Philippians safe. I want to keep you safe. When you are tempted to place confidence in the flesh, when you're tempted to either make a list of something that you have or haven't done or add something to your list, beware. Your, your flesh inside you wants to do it. Your flesh is eager to place confidence in anything but Christ alone. So what's on your list? Maybe you've got a list that, that, that you secretly kind of feed and cultivate. Something you put some, some secret confidence in. Well, I've never done this or this or this. I've been a faithful husband. I've provided for my family. I've been a good mom. I've taught Bible verses. What's on your list that you put confidence in? I've never done this, or maybe I'll always do this. I, I always keep my promises. I always have a Bible. There. There's, there, there, it's almost stupid giving examples because there's so many different ways your flesh could go with that. Do you have a secret list of I've never or I'll always? What's on your list of ministry served, promises kept, years doing? What's on your list of goals met, resolutions kept, sacrifices I've made? Maybe some of you are even tempted at year-end taxes to look and give yourself a little pat on the back because of how much you gave. See, our flesh is prone to putting confidence in the flesh. That's why these warnings are needed. What's on your list of, at least I'm not like them? They're always complaining. They're always unhappy. They're always drawing attention to themselves. See, Paul had a better list than you do. That list is foolish. It'll do you no good. So... Now that you have placed your faith in Christ, don't start cultivating one of those lists. Don't try to separate yourselves from your brothers and sisters in Christ and becoming some kind of super Christian that puts more confidence in these things. Please God as much as possible, but not for the sake of where you put your confidence. Now, next week, we're going to see what Paul does with that kind of list. And that would be a great exercise in this upcoming week. If I did have a list... You know, go rooting around in your heart. What is on that list? Is, is there anything there? Do I have any propensities to take pride in the things that my flesh has done? We're going to see next week what to do with that. A few times a week, I said, someone ignores that loud voice at the transit center. Stay on the other side of the yellow line. Perhaps it's carelessness. 
Perhaps it's pride. Sometimes I look out to see what's going on out there. Is it, is it someone drunk? Is it a child? Is it someone just pushing their luck? We can't let either pride nor carelessness keep us from hearing Paul's warning to the Philippians. He says it three times, beware, beware, beware. You need this warning. I need this warning. Don't think you don't need this warning. You have the propensity in your flesh to trust in something besides Christ alone. Your works, your accomplishments, your cleanliness, your promises, your prayers. Don't listen to those who preach more than Christ, something in addition to Christ. They are not his people. They are unclean and dangerous. They promulgate evil. They do not have his spirit. Their confidence is in the flesh. Keep believing in Christ alone. Father, there are times when we come to your word, and I do think it is easy uh, for us to think that we have this, that we know this doctrine. We affirm this doctrine. It's who we are. Lord, I pray, Father, that you would uh, use this warning um, as we think about others who proclaim Christ but cling to works. I pray, Father, that we would even have a pity in our hearts for them. But I pray, Father, we would also... Uh, Beware, Lord. We beware that we are susceptible to the same lies, susceptible to these arguments of adding something to our flesh, Lord. Father, no doubt we all have had in our Christian walks, or at least the propensity to cultivating some kind of list like Paul has here, something that, that we could put our trust in. Maybe it's over years of being a Christian. Maybe it's just a deceit we've fallen into in the last month, last years. Patting ourselves on the back. Separating ourselves from our brothers and sisters in Christ because of what we have or haven't done. I pray, Father, that you would help us to remember that salvation is in Christ alone. I pray, Father, that you would help those who are growing up as children here in Cornerstone. They would be able to confirm that being saved is by believing in Jesus I pray, Father, that you would allow this, this doctrine to be so clear. I pray that you protect us from, from doing any kind of evil working in our homes by, 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 by oversimplifying this miracle. We know that it's going to take a work of your spirit to give them true saving faith, Lord. Help us to keep pointing them to faith alone in your Son. I do pray, Father, that you would be exalted in the hearts of those where, where, where maybe they uh, are here this morning. And they realize that they're not saved, that they've been putting their confidence in all kinds of other things. I pray, Father, that the true gospel would go forth with clarity, that your spirit would awaken their hearts, and they would put faith in your son. We thank you, Father, for giving us your word and for preserving this warning for us, as you know us better than we know ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen.